I know a number of you probably had some boo-hoo breakfast this week as you dropped kids off for the first time, or not the first time, but just sad to see them going back. I want you to know Lisa and I love our kids, but we have always been of the ilk that we actually have booyah breakfast. (laughs) It's over. Back to school. Yes. We did that Friday with some friends who we've been with since, you know, birth of our children and now kids in, in college. The end of summer is the beginning of school. And, you know, while our kids are going to bemoan it, we know it's a good thing. and it's, it's, it's a right thing. I know there's some who will disagree with me on this, but I think if summer never ended, that would be a bad, bad thing. If it never <laughs> It needs to end. I just finished a book that David Arms recommended to me. David's one of my best buddies, and he, he said, man, you're going to love this book, I think. It's written it's a little different way it's written, but, man, beautifully written. You'll love it. Well, I just finished it maybe a week and a half ago, and as I approached the last, you know, three chapters or so, I slowed way down, and I would pick moments in the evening when I knew I would be undistracted because I wanted to savor the last three chapters, the last paragraph, the last sentence, the last word. Excuse me. It's a good sign, excuse me, when you, when you love a book, you don't want it to end. That's a good thing. I mean, maybe not a, doesn't mean it's a great book. It means you loved it. Can you imagine if you had a book that you loved, but it never ended? I would suggest that, that that book would become one that you loved. It would, it would in time become one you loathed. <laughs> this thing needs to end. <laughs> the ending really, really matters. Uh, this came home to me around endings when I picked up a book about five years ago by Henry Cloud. Henry Cloud wrote Boundaries. He wrote a number of best-selling books. Helped, I know helped a lot of us over the years. He wrote this book called Necessary Endings. And it became a book that I keep around. I keep several, try and keep several copies because I will hand this book out. I think maybe this may be a nece- I need you to read this book. It may be a necessary ending for you. As the title suggests, it's a book of, that, that, that normalizes endings. See, this, it, we don't like to think about endings usually. And we're going to deny endings. We're going to avoid endings. We're going to put endings off. And he talks about their necessity. They're required, men and women, to live life. It's been true in my life, and I think it maybe is true in many of yours, that when I have been in those seasons where I'm stuck, I'm just stuck, either you know, professionally, emotionally, spiritually, relationally, stuck. It often has, it often has less to do with what I'm doing in my stuckness, and everything to do with what I won't stop, what I won't end, to move past the stuckness. A partnership that was great for a time, it's changed, it's not going well, needs to end. A relationship that is stuck, maybe it's stuck in neutral, that's not a good place for any relationship, but now this relationship is stuck in reverse. And you need to get off and go forward and you can't change it. How about a job that you've outgrown or in a humbler state, but a reality, maybe the job's outgrown you. 
could be a habit, you know, a behavior that medicates your insecurities, but is destroying the most important things in your life. A friendship, see this often, you know, a friendship that's rooted in the past, but you know what? You're a different person today. And that friendship needs to change and may need to end. Maybe the hardest of all is to take a good thing and know that it must end to move on to the better thing and the best thing. How about this? I'm going to go there. How about the Christian thing? How about the spiritual thing? Yes, I'm going to say it. How about the Bible study that needs to end? Really hard, isn't it? Really hard. It needs to end. Because God's got something better, something next for you or for me. Ending a good thing to get to the best requires a measure of faith that few of us walk well in. Let me add a, a, a sobering note to this. The measure of the necessity, how necessary it is, medium, you know, sort of, what? Necessary. The intensity or the, ne- the necessariness of it, you see, is generally commensurate with what? The difficulty of it. Why is this so hard? Because it's so necessary. You know, you find this true in the Bible, the story of redemption. Put on these lenses one day, this idea of necessary endings, and then read your Bible. And as you go from Genesis to Revelation, notice how God always invites and leads his people to, to, to endings to move on to the next thing in the story of redemption for them and for his glory. Abraham has come in our study to a necessary ending. It's brutal. William Barclay says of this text we'll study today, quote, it is a story of highest artistry, but this does not mean that it's an, in, that it's an enjoyable story or even a nice one. It's neither. It opens with laughter, but very quickly it moves to tears. My prayer this week, as I've studied this and prepared to teach, has been that for us, Abraham's story of his own necessary ending and how he walked in it, this is no surprise. You know how he walked in it? He walked in it by faith. And and as we see him do that, I'm trusting that we will likewise walk in faith in some necessary endings in our own life. And let me add this, that the difficulty of the ending will only deepen our conviction, having walked in it, that our God is a God who keeps his promises, even in these necessary endings. By way of context, uh, we're going to pick up where Michael left off last week. If you have your Bibles, open to chapter 21. We're going to be in verses 8 through 21. Uh, we know that this story, what we're picking up on, is the end of the wait. Abraham and Sarah have waited 25 years for the birth of the promised son. And he's, he's here, the promised child. We're going to note that our text today begins with a celebration And then it does, as Barclay said, move to tears. I'm going to read it in two parts because we're going to take the passage in two parts. Verses 8 to 14, I'm going to call that Abraham's faith 
to end. That's kind of weird, but it's what it is. He's got the faith to end this. And then I'm going to pick up in verses 15 to 21, and we're going to look at Hagar's faith to see. So there's this faith to end, and there's this faith to see. We'll read it and study it in those two sections. Follow along in your Bibles, God's word to you and to me this Lord's Day, Genesis chapter 21, beginning in verse 8. The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Isaac is probably three, three years old, weaning him from his mother's breast. That's how they did it in that, in that culture in that day. Ishmael is probably 15, 16. Okay, see the age difference that's going on here. Verse 9, now Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, mocking. The word mocking has the same root as Isaac, Isaac, laughter. So, So he's laughing. There's something playful in this. But Sarah sees something that's not right. She sees a future with Isaac and Ishmael together that she says, that's not gonna happen. Verse 10, therefore, she said to Abraham, drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son, Isaac. The matter distressed or literally grieved Abraham greatly because of his son, because of Ishmael. But God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her, for through Isaac your descendants shall be named. And the son of the maid I will make a nation also, because he is your descendant. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar, putting them on her shoulder and gave her the boy and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. Abraham's faith to end. Uh, The span of three verses, we go from celebration, he's here, to crisis, this boy's gotta go. From laughter to tears, from this is great to this is awful at this family celebration. If it tells us anything, I do think it tells us this. Avoid family celebrations. (laughs) This is what happens when the family gets together. Now, we're laughing because it does. Not always. Isn't that something? It does. I'll never forget a guy, Speaker Ron Dunn, 35 years ago. You know, I'm just a kid and he said this, but I've never forgotten it. He said, in this world, good and bad move on parallel tracks in our lives. It's so true. You know, you you wish it was just all good, but that's not the way life is. And here we go at this family celebration. It's fantastic. I remember one of my kids' first birthdays, man, I messed up and I did not have the camcorder working right. And I'm just going to tell you, that birthday, we don't remember anything about the kid. And we remember everything about Lisa and I just going ballistic with each other on that. Goes from laughter to crying. No, the, 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 the story, what it's showing us is certainly this. Abraham has a Sophie's choice to make. Those of you who can reach back to the movie, I'll remind you of this Meryl Streep, Sophie's choice. Uh, She is a a Jew in a concentration camp and she uh, is faced with just this brutal, uh, uh, you know, commander or whatever. And he makes her choose which of her children, she's got two, will go to the gas chamber 
and which one will live. That's a choice that no parent is made to make. And as the novel shows it, and the movie itself plays out, that choice destroys her, as it would any of us. Abraham is faced with a similar choice. It's this grave, as you'll see in a moment. It's a necessary ending, and if I can say this, it's humanly impossible to make. Verse 12, but God said to Abraham, don't be distressed. Regardless of Sarah's motives, God said, Sarah's wishes are actually in line with my purposes. And uh, a quick lesson we can grab regarding any necessary ending in life would be this. When we make a necessary ending in life, we need to make sure that it begins with God said. God said. See, I, I have a feeling some of you might run out of here and run up to someone and go, Lloyd said I need to get rid of you. <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, no. It always begins with God said. Now, you might be thinking, well, Lloyd, if God spoke as clearly to me as he spoke to Abraham, that would be easy. I beg to differ. I would suggest that God has said more to you and me than he ever said to Abraham in his whole life. Oh, God has spoken. I'll use me as an example. You can make your own evaluation in your own life. But my world, it's not usually that I don't know what God has said. I'm just telling you, it's generally this. What he said clearly, I can't do it. I don't want to do it. It's too hard. That's how I live in this fallen body, the world, the flesh, and the devil conspiring against what God clearly says. We walk into a necessary ending. May we always know. God said. Now, how do we know what God said? And, y'all, this, we talk about it so much. Well, we know what he said by what he said. And it's you and I being in that word and hearing and listening and the Holy Spirit speaking as we know his word. Well, he has a word from God and it's, man, it's, it's powerful just the text itself. He gets a word and then what does it say? He got up early the next morning. We'll talk more about that maybe later, but just he got the word and he did it. He responded the next morning. In verse 14, he does what God said. He rose early in the morning. He took bread and a skin. That's a little pouch of water. You know, that's what that is, a canteen. And he gave them to Hagar, putting them on her shoulder. And he gave her the boy and he sent her away. She departed and she wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. I have struggled with this verse so much in preparing to teach. I, I, I want you to consider something with me. I want you to wrestle, wrestle it to the ground with me. Abraham uh, is, uh, is a wealthy man. In, in our day today, and I don't have the statistics or accuracy on this, but just to give us some kind, he's a billionaire. Can we say that? I mean, he, he literally is loaded. The man, you know, we've already watched him come out with a lot. He went to Egypt, came out with more. It, it, they've multiplied. He's got multiple servants. He has multiple camels. He's got multiple goats and sheep and 
everything that you would want. The guy, we're going to see in a moment, he's got all kinds of gold and silver and jewelry, moolah, money. He's got it all. And yet he gives them prison rations. Here's water. Here's some bread. He gives them just enough, gang, to go far enough into the desert that he doesn't see them die or hear them cry. Literally, that's what he gave them. He could have given them so, you see what I'm saying? He could have given them everything. And I go, what kind of cruelty is this? Well, I, I kept reading this, and finally it dawned on me when I read verse 13 for the upteenth time. Notice this, and the son of the maid, I will make a nation also. And I think when we understand this, it moves from what seems like an act of cruelty to, I really believe this, the most amazing step of faith that Abraham has taken up to this point in his life. And it's preparing him for another one. I'll say more about that next week. Let me me ask you to think about it this way. When... God said that, I'll make an, who, who takes responsibility for Hagar and Ishmael? Who takes responsibility for making him a nation in the text? This is not a trick question. Who, who t- God takes responsibility. Okay, let's go all the way back to Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, God comes to Abraham and says, you know, I'm going to make a nation through you. The nation's going to be blessed through you. You're going to give this. Who takes responsibility that Abraham and Sarah would have a son and a nation would come through that son and get the land? Who takes responsibility in Genesis 1, in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, the Abrahamic, Abrahamic covenant? Not a trick question. Who takes responsibility? Are we clear on that? Read it. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. God says, I will, I will, I will. Ten years into that promise, Abraham and Sarai, Abram and Sarah at the time, they don't have the boy. They don't have the son. And so ten years in, who takes responsibility for making sure we get a boy? Who takes responsibility? Abram and Sarah. Here, take Hagar. She get pregnant. We can have a son. Listen, they got the son, but they didn't get the son that would only come by faith. Whoo, this is a big lesson. They got the son, but they didn't get the son that only God could provide and that would come to them because they believed that God keeps his promise. They didn't get that son, not then. Not through Hagar. I want to suggest that in this moment, the faith that Abraham expresses is gargantuan. For he believes that God is going to keep his promise to this boy and therefore he doesn't underwrite the whole affair. He could have. Y'all, he could have given him so many camels, so many sheep, so much money, they could have walked into the wilderness wealthy and he would have not missed one cent. But instead, in faith, he gives him just enough to go into that desert And if God does not come through, they perish. You talk about faith. The faith he had to withhold what he could have easily given. But had he given it, that would not have been a faith. Are you guys tracking with me on this? It's amazing. Sometimes faith 
requires withholding what could easily be given. Lloyd, what do you mean? Let me help us understand this a little more. I don't, think I don't think there's a parent in the room that won't face this kind of necessary ending over and over with your children. Lisa and I, one of our greatest struggles for Lisa and I is to withhold what we could easily give our kids. But to, but to not give what we could easily give them. Lord, why would you withhold what you could easily provide and give? Because I want my kids to know that their ultimate provider is not mom and dad. It's God. You see, now, of course, you don't do this with their babies. You know, you know what I'm talking about as they grow up. Because I want them to know that they themselves are not their ultimate provider. God's the one who provides for them. You see, for God is writing faith on their hearts in the same way he's writing faith on ours as parents. Uh, my son Darden, just over a year ago, early summer, he got in some very serious trouble. And I'm saying something he's spoken of publicly before. You would not mind me saying this, but he, he got himself in, in, into some trouble. And, and Darden had to write a check that cost him within just a couple hundred dollars of every red cent he had earned since he was a freshman in high school till he graduated as a senior and the money he was taking to college with him. It was gone. It was gone. And it took everything in me and Lisa, we talked about it, not to reach over, take out the checkbook and make him whole. <laughs> Honey, I'll take your... No, no, because we really believe that in this instance, God had, had, was at work even through this difficulty for Darden's life and his faith and for Darden to understand, listen, you're gonna pay for this, and, but God's not through with you and God will provide. And it reminds me, I wanna step back and remind us of something I talked about weeks ago when I said the basic framework of faith is you and I learning to live between our reality and the promise of God. This is the life of faith. Oh my, it's living between the reality and the promise that God has given and holding the tension of those. The reality is Darden just lost everything he worked for as a young man. This is not going to be good for him going to college in this state in this way. And the reality is, I could write a check and make him whole and make it better. And yet we believe God was using this event in his life. And God's promises to my kid to bring him to himself and to make him wholehearted. And God was going to use this event in his life to do that. And so we held the promise and we held the reality till they kissed and we held on. And we hold this tension. And this is the life of faith, holding the reality and the promise. Abraham, Ishmael's my boy. He's my son. Chapter 17, he asked of God, let the promise come through Ishmael. God said, no. We'll talk about that next week. No. Ishmael has to go. That's the reality. God makes a promise to Abraham, doesn't he? I will make a nation of that boy. And so holding the promise and holding the reality, Abram, rather than taking control of the promise, let me, let me make him a nation. You see that? He could have. 
He said, here's the water. Here's the bread. If God does not keep his promise, you will die. And he sent them off. Whoa. Abram's faith to end. Hagar's faith to see. Verses 8, 15 to 21. Hagar's faith to see. The story continued. When the water in the skin was used up, she left the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him, about a bow shot away, 40, 50 yards for she said, do not let me see, see the boy die. And she sat opposite him and lifted her voice and wept. God heard the lad crying. Does anyone remember what the name Ishmael means? Anybody remember? Ishmael means God hears. See, God hears the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what is the matter with you? Hagar, do not fear, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Very specific instructions. Get up, arise, lift up the lad, go lift up the lad, and hold him by the hand, your hand. Then the promise, for I will make him a great nation of him. Notice the the grammar here. Then, do this, then God opened her eyes. And she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. God was with the lad. And he grew and he lived in the wilderness and became an archer. He lived in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. What God had promised for Ishmael in chapter 16, he'll be a wild donkey of a man. In other words, he'll he'll be out there and he'll be against all. That's exactly what happens in these last two verses. God kept his promise. Well, Hagar's faith to see. On the verge of death, by dehydration, you know, there's a well close enough for her to see. Like, it'd be like me dying of thirst right now, and there's a well there. But she couldn't see it until God opened her eyes. What is going on? It's there. She can't see it until God opens her eyes. I cannot be dogmatic on this. Um, but I think the text lends itself to this, and I, I think it's a pretty consistent pattern in the life of faith, even throughout Scripture. Notice the angel tells her, get up, take his hand, hold the boy. I want to suggest that she does that, and as she's doing that, her eyes are opened. What do, what do I mean? I want to suggest that she took the step of faith, and in taking the step of faith, she saw what God had there all along. And it's consistent with your life and mine. Remember Michael said last week, faith is the assurance of things, assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We don't see, I, I can't end this. I can't, I don't see where it's gonna, how are we gonna make it without? And it's only when we, Take the step of faith, you see. Then our eyes are opened and we see God's great provision. Now, this, 
you got to keep in mind God's agenda for you and for me, for all who have placed their faith in Christ, when you've trusted Christ for your salvation, placed your faith in his life, death, and resurrection, that he did it for you, I believe it. You do understand you're still on the planet because God is going to shape you and grow you into the image of his son. That's why we're here. How do we say it at fellowship? It's the middle part of our mission. Proclaim Christ, mature in the faith, and be equipped to give our lives away. Mature in the faith. God is making you and I more and more like Christ. How does God do that? He does it as we learn to walk by faith. And as we learn to walk by faith in the fullness of his spirit, he shapes Christ in us. And then we do see his great provision. There's something way more important than God just giving you the well. What he's really after is your heart. Will you trust me? Yes. Then get out from under the bush. There's a well. And it's true in your life and it's true in mine. This is not name it, claim it stuff. This is not that at all. This is in the power of the Spirit, trusting the Word of God and choosing the step of faith. And God giving His great provision and He will provide abundantly i can say this in every wilderness you find yourself in i think it's interesting we could talk about this longer but maybe you can bounce this around in your community group or small group isn't it interesting that when she took that step it's not it he didn't say then god provided another skin of water here's another one drink this one till it's gone no what did he provide y'all what did he provide Oh, well, what, what do you think of when you think, this is water abundant. This is, this is overflow water. I'm telling you something, wells in the Bible mean something <laughs> all through the Bible. Samaritan woman at the well, with the well of living water. You see, God provides abundantly, profoundly as we take that step of faith. Well, next week I am going to I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to unpack the theological groundwork on this, and then I'm going to finish verses 22 to 34. I'm going to teach two weeks in a row, so it's, enable, it's enabling me to cheat a little bit because I have so much we could say on this. So I hope you'll come back for that. But I want to end this way. I simply want to end by putting this story in the context of the greater story. And this will be how we, we, we apply here at the end. Because these endings, his ending, it's like humanly impossible. Can't do it. I get that. That's true. I want you to think about it in the context of the greater story on those walls around us. The most cruel, inhumane, unjust, wrong ending in the history of the world is the Son of God crucified. The very one who spoke creation into being, sustains it by the word of his power, nailed to the cross at the hands of cruel men based on lies and false testimony. That's so wrong. And it's an ending. 33 years old. He died prematurely. It's an early ending. When Jesus said, it is finished, yes. When he said that, he speaks back and reaches all the way back to Genesis 3.15. When in the garden, in the fall, God said, one day a man will be born of a woman. He'll crush the serpent's head. He'll crush death. And he did. He defeated death by his own death, right? 
But it was, don't miss this, fully God, fully man, as a man, it was the end. It was an ending. But here's what we know. In that ending, buried, he rose again. And he lives. And therefore, if I can put it in these terms, I'm arguing from greater to lesser. If the greatest most terrible ending in the history of the world was not an ending because Jesus rose from the grave, then there is no ending in your life and mine that we need fear this side of him. Don't need to fear it. Because Jesus rose from the grave. And therefore, every ending in your life and mine holds, if you're in Christ, holds the seed of the resurrection, the very power of God to redeem, such that that ending, it hurts, doesn't make sense, it's going to be difficult, difficult. Yes, yes, yes. And God can use and will use that ending to move his purpose forward in your life and to move his kingdom forward in the world, and to bring himself greater glory. You can know that. I want you to think just for a moment. You know, you've probably got some things running through your head right now. You might be a little upset with me because when I started talking about these endings and stuff, you know, you're going, man, I did not want to think about that today. (laughs) Well, we are because this is where we are in our text, and this is why God has you here. So think for a moment before we leave, what is God inviting you to trust him for? What's the step of faith that he's inviting you to take? Would you do that for a moment? Then I'll have a stand and I will dismiss us with a word. Ask the Holy Spirit, what do you want me to do? What do you want this truth to do in me today? Let's stand together. I'm going to send you out with three, four phrases from the text itself. I think that will serve us well as we walk in our own necessary endings. Let me say this. I said at the beginning and I said it's true for Abraham. Listen, this is impossible. You've heard me say this many times. I just want to keep reminding you. The Christian life is impossible to live. God gives us his Holy Spirit. The person of Christ lives in us in the person of the Holy Spirit and enables us to live the Christian life. It's him living his life in and through us, you see. This is the life of dependence upon the Spirit and God reproducing the very life of Jesus in and through me by his Holy Spirit. It's, it's, you know, it's got a Christian, Christian living ought to have a warning label. You know, don't do this on your own. You, know? you can't. It's Christ in you. 
So in a necessary ending, it's always, as in all things, Christ working in and through us. Now, four words from God that come straight from the text. Just little phrases I want you to hang on to. Because when we read the text, you can go back through it. You'll notice these verbs, these actions that God takes. And it begins this way. God said. Then it says God heard. God opened. And God was with. I love that. God said. God heard in their obedience, their cry. God heard, God opened, showed, revealed, and God was with. Men and women, in every necessary ending in life, you can walk knowing. God said, God hears you, God will open your eyes, and God is with. Always and forever. God bless.